0: You don't have to look very far in our world to see pain and suffering. As we are taking time to observe Memorial Day, um, one of the things that we know is that as we are observing Memorial Day that we're reminded of men and women who have fought and who have given of themselves, who have paid the ultimate sacrifice uh, for our country. I, I think... Uh, as I have, over the years, I have gotten the opportunity to um, counsel many men who have um, been in various wars, particularly wars in the Middle East. And one of the things that I have seen as I've sat and talked with them is that war is torture. And I've seen, I've seen firsthand some of the ways that it's ravaged their minds and ravaged their bodies. Casey and I both have uncles who served in the Vietnam War, who have, they've passed on. But in both cases, we have family members who suffer greatly from PTSD, suffered greatly from PTSD and some other things. This world is full of suffering and pain and chaos. Many years ago, um, when I was pastor at Crossroads Church, uh, there was a man, and I'm going to call him Bob, uh, to keep him nameless, uh, who came to the church. He he the event. I think the first event that he came to was a free yard sale that we had, and it's a little bit of an odd name. What we would do is that we would gather stuff, and that we would say that we were having a yard sale, and then we would give stuff away. And the reason we did that is because. That just opened the door for us to be able to share the gospel. Why are you giving away free stuff? Are you sure it's free? Yes, it's free, and here's why it's free because we've received the free grace of God in our own life, and this is this is free to you. And so, Bob came to one of these yard sales, and Bob was a veteran. Bob was in great physical pain; he had major back issues. Bob was tormented by addiction. Um, He was taking drugs and alcohol in order to numb some of the pain in his life. Bob was homeless. He had been homeless for many years. I think probably six to eight years he had been homeless. He had two teenage kids and an ex-wife that lived not too far from where the church was, but he was unable to see them. Bob was desperate. And it was interesting that Bob came into the church and Bob stuck around and he stayed. And over the years of really getting to, to know Bob, um, he taught me a ton. I loved when Bob would get up and share a testimony. Bob would also serve like nobody else. He would cook for hours and hours and hours. And uh, my kids became very fond of his cooking. We would have Wednesday night meals and they would always wonder if Bob was the one who was cooking that evening. And Bob really became a brother to me. A brother in the Lord, but a brother. And I just think that he came to the church, he came to this body of believers out of desperation. And he was a very unlikely church member, right? Homeless, addicted to an all-white church. He was the only black man and he was a big black man. Uh, And it was so unlikely. He He wasn't buttoned up. He didn't have it all together. But Bob is a dear brother in the Lord. This morning, as we look at this text, as we dig into this text, we are going to see two very unlikely people converging at the feet of Jesus. Two very unlikely people this account is fascinating to me this is another one of those uh as we've been looking at one of these mark and sandwiches where we've got uh two events or or you've got one event and sandwiched in the middle is another event and we're supposed to look at as a whole and we've talked about that mark does this gary gave you the fancy name for that that i don't remember and probably couldn't repeat if i did he did actually share it again in the hallway and i still missed it uh So I'm just going to call it the Mark and Sandwich. But what's fascinating to me is that Mark uses this literary tool, but in the New Testament, these two stories are linked together also in Matthew and also in Luke. And so for over 2,000 years, when this story has been read, they've been read together. And so this morning, as we look at it, as tempting as it is to separate them out, I think that God wants us, that His Spirit inspired this in such a way that He wants us to hear this story together and that we will learn a great deal by looking at it together. And we'll see these two people at the feet of Jesus out of desperation. And I want you to get into the mind frame of what's going on here. And I want you to look at verse 23 with me again. And I want you to understand the desperation that is here in these two people's lives. I can't even begin to imagine. This man comes to Jesus and he says, my little daughter is at the point of death. If you are a parent in here this morning, there is no greater fear I think we have than if our children are sick and at the point of death. I remember when William was really small, he had this very, very, very minor surgery that I think literally took five minutes. But I'll never forget when they wheeled him away and I couldn't protect him anymore. I can't imagine the desperation of this man that's undergoing this tragedy of his daughter being so sick, 12 years old, that she's at the point of death. Can you put yourself in this place? These are the kinds of things that make people doubt the existence of God. Last week I was listening to a podcast between two philosophers and one of them was an atheist and I guess you would call the other one an agnostic. I don't really know what he was, but he was arguing for the existence of God and one of the Foundations that the atheist was arguing from was the existence of evil. And the example he used was bone cancer in children. Suffering. Tragedy. Desperation. I can't imagine being this man. And then there's a woman. Right? There's a woman. And we see in verse 25 that she had had this hemorrhage for 12 years years the same age as this little girl and what we will see we're not going to unpack this right now we'll see in a little bit is that what this disease had done is this disease had cost her everything this disease was not just simply uh, an inconvenience that it was had this great horrific impact on her life and that her healing meant not only a healing from physical pain and physical Discomfort, but a feeling, a healing of her return to her family, a healing of a return to her status, a healing that would greatly affect her emotionally. And so, what we get here, and we've got to understand this if we're going to understand this text, is that we have two people in the throes of desperation. They are desperate people. Have you been there? Are you there this morning? See, the reality is that we live in a world. We live in a world that is marred by sin. And sin has affected and sin has changed everything. And because sin has affected the world, desperation exists. Because this world is not how it's supposed to be. Twelve year old girls die. Sin has disrupted everything. Do you realize that we would have no need for Memorial Day if it weren't for sin? There would be no wars. There would be no restraining evil. There would be no killing. There would be no post-traumatic stress. There would be no amputations. Not only do people do bad things, But the reality of living in a disordered world means we live in a world where there is sin and when there is sickness and where there is death. And Friday, one of uh, Silas's coaches uh, was asking me, making sure that I could be at his game on Saturday early enough because he was going to the funeral of an 11-month-old girl. Can you imagine? 11 months old. You do not have to think very long or look very far to see the results of sin and brokenness and devastation in this disordered world. And praise be to God. Praise be to God that God did not leave us alone. God did not leave us to our own devices. But it's into this world that God sent His Son, Jesus. And Jesus comes and Jesus is bringing hope to a people who are devastated and who are desperate. And Mark has been clear. If you have been with us through this study, Mark has made it clear in this teaching we have seen the authority of Christ, haven't we? Christ has authority over sickness. We see Christ coming over and over again on repeat in Mark and He is healing people. We see over and over, we saw it last week, that Christ has authority over the demonic, over Satan. And we see Him casting out demons. We see that Christ has authority over nature. When nature comes and a storm comes upon the sea, that Christ has the ability to come and to stop the storm. And today we're going to see that He even has authority over death. But, I want you to know that there is a greater hope that we have. And the greater hope that we have is that Christ has authority over all sin. Not just sin as it's incurring in the world, but over sin in your life. That Christ, because of His death on the cross, has reconciled us to God. So that our deepest need, our deepest desperation has been taken care of. And we looked at this in Easter, didn't we? At Easter, do you remember as we looked at the book of Revelation and remember one of, the things that we, one of the things that we thought about, one of the things that I wanted to draw to your attention is that in the book of Revelation, it's revealed to John that there will no longer be any curse. And so we know through Christ that one day we will be in His kingdom forever without any of the effects of sin. And we have Christ here in this passage coming in and He is ushering in this new kingdom. And Until then, we live in this world. And you know, my amazement as I look at this text and as I think about the desperation, as I think about sin and brokenness in this world, my, my amazement is that so many people who are so desperate run away from Him. So, let's set the stage of these two unlikely people meeting in a very unlikely place. 21 sets the scene. If you remember, if you've been with us, Jesus had crossed over again in the boat. So Jesus had got in the boat, went over into Gentile territory, met the demoniac, and here we have him coming back over. He's back in Capernaum. He's on the other side. And surprise, surprise, as he gets to the other side, what is there waiting for him but a large crowd? The crowd was so large, look, it says so that he stayed by the seashore. He doesn't even try to go inland. There's a large crowd that is there and is, and is meeting him, and it is here that we meet Jairus. Look at verse 22. One of the synagogue officials named Jarius came up and on seeing him fell at his feet. And it's interesting here that this man is named in this text. And I think one of the reasons that this man is named is that at the time the text was written, he was still alive and you could go talk to him. You could go ask him about his daughter. He was named also because he was known. Look at his job. Look at his occupation here. He is a synagogue official. And over and over again in this text, it tells us the, the house of the synagogue official. The house of the synagogue official. This job gave him status. This job gave him prestige. He was not a priest. A synagogue official was a lay leader, but he would have been a known person in the community. He was the guy that got everything ready for the service in the synagogue. He would have been a play in a place of high prestige In a high position. One of the things I think is interesting here is this. Two things that I think are interesting. One is that I imagine, this is speculation, that here this man is, Jesus has been in this synagogue, and speculation is he's heard Jesus teach. He's seen Jesus do things, and he's just sat back and seen this. The other thing that I think is interesting is this. Remember, he's a lay leader. What are all the religious leaders thinking about Jesus? Do you remember where we left them? The scribes and the Pharisees? That they were seeking to do what? They were seeking to destroy Him. And so the unpopular thing would have been for him to go to Jesus. He was a known man. He was a man of the synagogue. And the leaders of the day, the religious leaders, were looking to destroy Jesus. And I am struck I am struck by this man's boldness. I'm struck. Right here, in the middle of these crowds, verse 21, it says there was a large crowd. In verse 24, it tells us that there was a large crowd. It's a great emphasis here. There was a great multitude. In public, this man, who is not supposed to be doing this, out of desperation, comes and throws himself at the feet of, of Jesus. And he's risking it all. He's risking it all. He's risking his position. He's resist, risking his power by throwing himself at the foot of Jesus. And then like we've said, there's also a woman. Look in verse 24. And he went off with him and a large crowd was following him and pressing in on him and a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. Isn't it fascinating to you that this woman is nameless? This man with this name, with this power and this prestige, and here we have this woman that's nameless. We know that in society, in this day and age, that women were were looked upon as lesser than. And it's interesting here that we don't get this woman's name. We know that her place in society is probably not very good. In fact, this woman is known as In history by her disease. She had this disease for 12 years. I can't even imagine. Some of you have suffered with illnesses and diseases and things for many, many years. And I have seen some of you suffer greatly. And I can't imagine bearing the weight of something like this. Sickness for 12 years. You know, in our day and age, a, a hemorrhage like this, a woman who has a bleeding issue, it's, it's kept as a private matter, but in this day and age, it was public. It was costly. If we look, I'm going to turn to the book of Leviticus. And I just want you to hear. You don't have to turn there. In Leviticus chapter 15, starting in verse 25. Now if a woman who has a discharge of blood many days not at the period of her menstrual impurity, or if she has discharge beyond that period, all the days of her impure discharge, she shall continue as though in her menstrual period. She is unclean. Any bed on which she lies, all the days of her discharge, shall be like her bed at menstruation. And everything on which she sits shall be unclean, like her uncleanness at that time." Likewise, whoever touches them shall be unclean and shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. you see how this affected her socially? Do you see how this affected her day to day life? Do you see how this affected her family? She's unclean. Twelve. Years. And as I was studying this, verse 26 just hit me really hard. And it really gave, gives insight into how desperate this woman is. Notice the wording of verse 26. That she had endured much at the hands of many physicians. She had gone to doctors. And it says that she endured She spent all that she had. She was hopeless. She was not helped at all, but rather grew worse. She had tried everything. She had spent everything. And this shows us the extent of this woman's desperation. And can you even imagine going to these links? And ending up being worse. And in the position where you are slowly dying with no hope. I would say. I would say. She is in a desperate. Desperate position. And notice. Notice we're going to see. Jairus comes straight out in the middle of public in the middle of the street works his way through the crowd and throws himself at the foot of Jesus and this woman has a different plan she's going to be a little bit more stealthy i think she knows her position she doesn't want to create a stir she does she knows that she's unclean but she also she also out of her desperation has faith that she can be healed and so she comes up with another plan and let's look at this plan and look at what happened starting in verse 27 After hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind Him and touched His cloak. For she thought, if I could just touch His garments, I'll get well. And notice what happens. Can you imagine the joy? And immediately the flow of blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Twelve years... And in an instant, in touching this man's, the hem of his cloak, that it's dried up and that she is healed. And in some ways, wouldn't you expect this story to end? In some ways, wouldn't you think, okay, what's going on here is that next, all of a sudden, we're going to jump back, Jesus is going to go to this little girl's house. He's going to heal this little girl. And then that's going to be the end of this story. And we're going to see the authority of Jesus. Which is what we see. Wouldn't that be what you might expect happen? But what I want you to see. And what Mark is telling us. Is that there is more to this story. There is more here than Jesus healing people. And I don't want you to miss it. And I want to ask you the question. Was it? Only desperation that drove people to Jesus. And I think our text answers this question. And I love the picture of the gospel that we get as we dig into this story. Let's look at verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in Himself that the power which had proceeded from Him had gone forth, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to Him, You see the crowd pressing in on you, and you say, Who touched me? And He looked around to see the woman who had done this. Now, I think what is fascinating here is this. Ask the question, Does Jesus know who touched Him? Yes, yes. So why in the world is He asking? In fact, in the original language in the Greek where it says, He turned around to see who touched Him, the who is in the feminine case. Meaning that Jesus knew the who was a female. He knew who touched Him. And so the question is begged, why in the world did Jesus do this? And I think this is a beautiful picture of the Gospel. Jesus is calling her forward. Jesus is calling her forward because He has more business to do with her. This is the part of this that we can't miss, that we need to see. This is a beautiful, wonderful picture. So Jesus turns around to see who had done this, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, noticed now, now she comes and falls down before Him at His feet. And she told the truth. And then this wonderful, wonderful interaction happens. Notice what Jesus does. He calls this woman forward who had been so desperate. And what does He say to her? What's the word? Daughter. Daughter. This is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus speaks this word to someone daughter this should draw to mind in us just in the background hearkens us back to chapter 3 verse 35 where jesus's family is coming to rescue him and jesus says who is my mother and brother and sisters It's those who do the will of my Father. And what we see is Jesus is looking at her and He is telling her that you, you are in my family because you are doing the will of my Father. And you may say, wait a minute, it doesn't say that she was doing the will of His Father. But isn't she? Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. What I believe is going on here, and I believe we see this in our lives as well, is this. Note this. At some point, this woman who is desperate in the midst of her suffering, in the midst of her agony, in the midst of her shame, in the midst of her embarrassment, at some moment... She heard this word of who Jesus was and what He could do. And the thing that happened inside of her is that faith was awakened. Faith was awakened. And when faith is awakened, we do the will of the Father, which is this. It's being drawn to Jesus. She doesn't run away from Jesus. She doesn't run away from the Lord. But when faith is awakened in her, she... Goes to Jesus. Faith draws people to Christ. And this is amazing. And while he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue officials saying, Your daughter has died. I trouble the teacher anymore. Can you imagine what this man would have been thinking? He just saw this amazing interaction with Jesus and this woman. Maybe in his pride he was thinking, do they know who I am? Does Jesus know who I am? And he stopped to help this woman. And because he helped this woman, my daughter died. Or maybe he's thinking Jesus could have waited. But Jesus is always on time we know that right the book of john there's so many parallels with the story of lazarus and jesus delaying and lazarus dying and jesus we're going to see a little more of this in a in a minute but could you imagine the emotions the confusion and notice what jesus says to him because what we're going to see is that the same thing that drew this drew the woman to jesus drew this man to jesus and we see this in this next in this next text in verse 36 But Jesus, overhearing what was being spoken, said to the synagogue official, Do not be afraid any longer, only believe. A very wooden translation would be not fearing, continue believing. Not fearing, continue believing. The idea in the text, when you read it, is this continue in your belief. Don't fear, continue in your belief. Which means that Jesus is commending him for the belief and the faith that he had in coming to him in the first place. And the same thing I believe happened to this man, that happened to this woman. As his daughter is sick, as he is desperate, as he is in the throes of frustration and pain and agony, that maybe he remembered the words of Christ in the synagogue. And that something happened inside of him. His faith was awakened. And the only thing that made any sense in that moment was to get to the feet of Jesus. And in this moment again where there could be cause for despair, now he's in the face of the Savior. He's walking with the Savior and the Savior says, no fear, keep believing. See, at the time of the deepest and darkest despair, God's Spirit can awaken faith in you and draw you to the Savior. And we see, we see that He is mighty, He is capable, He is compassionate, He is able. And we see what he's done to this unnamed woman. And now, just real quickly, we're going to run through this. Look at what he does in the life of this man. Starting in verse 37. And he allowed no one to accompany him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the synagogue official, and he saw a commotion, and the people loudly weeping and wailing. And entering in, he said to them, Why make a commotion and weep? The child has not died, but is asleep. Now, some people want to look at this and say that the child was just in a coma and Jesus just kind of stirred her and woke her up. But if you know the culture, if you know the background, what was going on is this girl had died. And in this day and age, what you did is you hired people to come in and to wail and mourn and to play flutes. And that's what was going on at his house. This girl was dead. And it's interesting here that he uses the same wording that we see in his calling force of Lazarus. Two things here: is One, that He uses the language of just sleeping, just like He said with Lazarus. And so entering in, threw everybody out. Verse 40, they began laughing at Him, but putting them all out, He took along the child's father, mother, and His own companions, and they entered the room where the child was. And taking the child by the hand, He said to her, and notice Jesus does the same thing To Lazarus. He speaks directly to the corpse. And he says. "Talitha cum," Which translated means. Little girl I say to you get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk. For she was 12 years old. And immediately they were completely astonished. And they gave them strict orders. That no one should know about this. And he said that something should be given to her. To eat. And the question that I have where else would you go? Where else in the midst of desperation, in the midst of pain, where else would you go? You see, this woman and this man could have suffered differently, right? They could have drawn in. They could have got angry. How dare God make my daughter sick? Doesn't anybody know what's going on with me? They could have been bitter, angry, mad. And some of you, some of you may be there this morning. Some of you in your desperation, in your frustration, in your sickness, in your pain of whatever is going on in your life, some of you may be there this morning. And I am praying that this morning that the Spirit would begin to stir your hearts and that you would be drawn to the Savior. And don't miss this. Don't miss this. That God takes this pain and this suffering and He redeems it. That God uses this pain and this suffering in this man's life and in this woman's life and does something much greater than raising His daughter from the dead and healing her from a 12-year disease. He does something much greater. He welcomes them into the family of God. That it was through the pain, through the suffering, that God does something great. My prayer. That you if you are here and you're troubled, you're weighed down, that the Spirit would ignite the faith in you and bring you to the foot of Jesus. Maybe you're desperate this morning. Have you considered throwing yourself at his feet? We know that God doesn't always heal us of our blood diseases or raise sick kids. But we do know that God is always working in the midst of chaos. That God is always working in the midst of pain. And that one day, one day, it will all be made right. And I think he's calling all of us to have the same kind of attitude, what I call the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego attitude, and that is this. Do you remember their prayer when they were getting ready to be thrown in the furnace? They believed that God could deliver them from the furnace. They believed that God would deliver them from the furnace. And then they said, even if He doesn't, we will trust Him in the middle of that furnace. You know, we at Crossroads could not fix Bob. Bob's life was a mess. And God didn't choose to just in the midst of a moment just boom, heal Bob of all his ailments. Heal him of his addiction. Heal him of the pain that he was in. Heal his family. And I know that God has brought him a long way. I know that he still struggles. But I know that one of the messages that God has for Bob and one of the messages that God may have for you this morning is this. Don't fear. Keep on believing keep on believing and so this morning that belief may produce a need in you that need that you have may produce needs to produce humility that you'll listen to the spirit that maybe God is using whatever turmoil is in your life this morning that is taking you to a place of need so that you will realize your limits and that you are not in control. This need that you have is meant to throw you at the feet of Jesus where He looks at you and calls you His son or His daughter. And something interesting happens. When we are there at the feet of Jesus and we look around, guess who we find? People that are just like us. People who are just like us. I I don't know if you get it from this story, but the thing that you need to hear is that Jairus and this woman were worlds apart. But at the feet of Jesus, they were the same. My friend Bob and I were from completely different worlds, completely different stories, but at the feet of Jesus, we're there together. And I pray, I pray that as a church, as a church, that we will see people and we will see life like Christ would have us see it. That we would be a place that is pouring forth the hope that is found in the gospel for people who are desperate and are in need. And I pray that the Spirit would bring people to you as you go out and bring people in these doors that are in deep need that may be drastically different for us from us, but as we look around, we see that we're the same. That they are brought into the family of God the same way that we are. Through faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Word. God, I thank You for Your grace and mercy. God, I pray that Your Spirit would do its work this morning and that those who are in need would find peace and hope at the foot of Your Son. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.